Well, we're in a series right now uh, called The Kingdom of God. Um, I'm going to warn you, I have like 10 pages of notes, and I'm going to do my best to pare those down this morning so that we're not stuck here for the next couple of hours. But uh, trying, to, trying to cover everything in uh, one, one sermon is uh, proving to be more challenging than I thought. But uh, we've already covered a couple of important things. We covered being made in the image of God and how there's a divine dignity being made in the image of God. And then last week we talked about the fall and how there's a rebellion that exists in the world and that that human beings, you know, live in glad rebellion. We embrace our own will over God's will, and that is what the state of the world is today. Um, But I want to try to answer some questions uh, does God offer any, any explanation for, for why things are the way they are? I mean, this, you know, last year, a year ago from, from this Easter, we were all watching online. No one was gathered here. We did our first uh, service back there in the, in the studio that we created to do our, our church services. That was last Easter. And, and since that time, basically since Easter, the world just went completely crazy, completely mad. Is there any explanation for that? Is there any explanation for why the world is so angry and divided? Does God offer any explanation to that? And is there any hope that things will get better? Well, um, I've been doing some work around the house, slowly working on uh, fixing some things. One of the things in our, in our old farmhouse, it was my grandpa's house uh, that, we, that we bought several years ago, um, is the wiring. So my grandpa did a lot of the wiring, and that's one of the special treats of... of uh, of the house is finding a lot of the things grandpa did with the wiring. I've been working on Hannah's room and trying to rewire it and a lot of the wiring runs ran over the attic in Hannah's room and and I found I found something like six uh, splices just spliced together with electrical tape hidden in the walls. I found junction boxes hidden in the walls. I found uh, three wires that had been cut off at some point in time still attached to uh, to the panel and just kind of hanging down there in the wall, just open and, you know, ready to start a fire and that kind of a thing. So um, lots, lots of fun things like that. But one of the fun things was the three-way switch uh, that Grandpa, that Grandpa, Grandpa kind of, I love my Grandpa, and he was able to get things working. But just because you're able to get something to work doesn't mean you did it the right way. And so he had this three-way switch, and, and in the, he ran the power into the light, which is what he typically did. Instead of running power to the light switch and then up to the light, which kind of is the standard way of doing it, he, he would run power to the light and then run a, a line down to the switch to probably save wire. Although the amount of wire I pulled out of the stuff that he did, he wasted a whole lot of wire. But in his mind, it was probably more efficient. Well, this light had six wires connected to it. And three of them went down to the three-way switch, and then he had, he had a, uh, two old uh, knob and tube wires running between the two switches to get the, the three-way switch to work, and then he had a couple of wires running. It was, it was a, a complete mess. And so I did some research. I'm not an electrician, but I've done a lot when I was a worship pastor. did a lot of low-voltage stuff, you know, working with uh, networks and that kind of a thing which is way more complicated than, than electrical wiring. And so for the most part, when I've done something, it just works the first time because, you know, when you're putting eight wires into a little pin and, and you mess that up three or four times, you start to learn to pay attention to three wires and you get that right. 
Well, I, I did some research, and you know, I, I researched several ways to do it, and I, I figured out the best way that worked with how, how things were kind of set up, and I went and I got new three-way switches. I decided if I was going to do, do this, I was going to replace everything and make it right so I didn't have to hopefully do it again in the rest of my life. I go in and I, I pull all the wires and Henry's helping me and we're pulling wires through the attic and we're crawling in, you know, and I'm not a small guy and we're crawling in all these little crawl spaces behind the attic and pulling wire and, and fighting wire and I go through and I get everything, get everything set up. I use the diagrams, I printed off the diagrams that I found online and, and I get everything set up and, and I go just, just kind of assuming that it's going to be right and I go or have Henry go turn the breaker on and, and I flip the switch and it flips the breaker. And so, well, I, I go to the other switch and I turn it, I, I flip that switch and have Henry go turn the breaker back on and the lights come on and then, then I flip the switch and it flips the breaker. And we spent like an hour, you know, just trying different combinations, see if I could figure out what was going on, what, what was causing the problem. Well, I was able to get it to a point where, where we could have one, one switch taped over so the kids didn't accidentally you know, flip that switch and then flip the breaker, trip the breaker, and, and we could still turn the light on and off. But I spent, I spent a whole week sitting there worrying, is the house going to burn down because there's some kind of major problem with the, with the wiring that I've just done? And it's all new wire now because I pulled all new wire. I've, I've, I've messed something up. I spend another full day on this, on, this, on this switch, probably five, six hours is my day off, so a full day of my day off working on this thing, and, I, and I, I, ha I have Henry help me pull all new wire, pull all new wire. We go in, we, we rewire everything. We pull wire through the walls, which I didn't do in the first place because it was going to be more work, but, to, but we decided we're going to just do it, do it the way, the most common way a three-way switch is wired. And we go through all of this work, and I hook everything back up and flip the switch and it trips the breaker. The next day, start over again and I start thinking, I finally, I th well, what could possibly, what could possibly be wrong with, with the things that I've done? I've done everything and I, re I rechecked and rechecked and rechecked. Everything was how it was supposed to be and I didn't understand it. I was, re I was really mad. <laughs> So I get, on, I, get on, I get on Google that night, and I just start looking, and I start looking, and I get on these forums, and one of the guys says it's a bad switch. And I'm like, that can't possibly be a bad switch. It's a brand new switch. And I didn't even buy the cheap switches. I bought the next line up from the cheap switches because it can't possibly be a bad switch. But fortunately, Grandpa kept everything, and he, he had like three three-way switches out in the shop. And so I go out, and I grab one of the old three-way switches, and I take out the first switch, and I put it in there, and I flip the switch, and it works just fine. I have to tell you, it took every ounce of restraint I had not to take that broken switch, go down to Home Depot, stand in the customer service line, and say, you just cost me three days of my life by selling me this junk switch. I was mad. I was, I was thinking about what I was thinking about. I was just going to check the switch up there, but I'm not sure I would get it up there without hitting the lights. And I've thrown things in services before and gave somebody bruises, so we're not going to do that today. <laughs> yeah, I was looking over kind of your, your direction, so it probably would be a bad idea. <laughs> See, it turned out 
that there was a fundamental flaw inside the switch that I couldn't see. Everything on the outside looked fine. Everything on the outside looked normal, it looked right, but there was a fundamental flaw inside the switch where, where one, of the, one of the hot terminals here, there's two hot terminals on each side of a three-way switch, and one of the hot terminals uh, was wired to the ground inside the switch. There was a fundamental flaw. So every time I would flip the switch and it would activate the circuit between the, the hot the hot screw and the ground, it would trip the breaker because the breaker saw that there was a fault. And so there was a fundamental flaw inside it. Everything looked fine on the outside, but on the inside everything was messed up. Why are things the way we are? Let's try to cruise through some information and get some, get some uh, foundation laid here. God did not make the world this way. God made the world as a paradise, and as a result of our rebellion against God in the garden, choosing to do things our own way, we're the ones who actually messed up the world. So God gets all the blame, but the truth is it's humans who are responsible for messing up the world. In the beginning, God made people in his image. We talked about that, that we looked like God. We were created to look like God, and we were created to rule and reign over God's creation as his representatives with the full authority of our maker and creator. That's why there's a divine dignity to being human. Every human is made in the image of God, and there's a divine dignity to being made in the image. But Adam and Eve listened to the tempting lies of the serpent in the garden, and instead of embracing what God had for them, they embraced an alternate reality built on the lie that they could decide for themselves what is right and wrong. They embraced the lie that they could decide what is right and wrong. As a result of this, Adam and Eve opened the door to an alternate kingdom. We've been using the illustration of Stranger Things over the last several weeks. In Stranger Things lingo, Eleven, 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 Eve, Eve, a.k.a. Eve, Eleven, Eve, opened the gate with her choice to, re to go against God's way, opened the gate between the kingdom of God reality, where God rules and reigns, into the upside-down kingdom where the prince of the air, also known as the devil, rules and reigns. When they chose to rebel against God in pursuit of the opportunity to define truth for themselves, the whole human race became cursed with a sense of radical individualism. Well, not long after Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, things had gotten so bad that God actually regretted making humans. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 6. A few generations later, we come across the story of the Tower of Babel, where, we, where the city of Babylon was being made. Genesis 11, verse 1, the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered across the face of the entire earth. The problem is that God had commanded them to spread across the face of the earth so that they would fill the earth and, and multiply and subdue it. That was the command that God had given. But instead, they wanted to congregate all in one place and make a tower and a name for themselves. This was their attempt to get on equal footing with God. They wanted to exalt themselves instead of exalt the name of God. 
Throughout Scripture, the city of Babylon represents the upside-down kingdom of this world. There are two big pictures of the upside-down kingdom in Scripture. It's Babylon and Egypt. Both of them are used throughout Scripture to represent the upside-down kingdom of the world where individualism and selfishness rules and reigns. It's where everything is backwards from God's design. At this point in the story, a man named Abram enters, and he does something different than Adam and Eve. He does something different than all the ancestors, and it's really simple. Scripture says, Abraham believed God. See, if Adam and Eve had believed God, we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. If we believed God, we wouldn't find ourselves in the situation we're in today. But Abram, or his name would later be changed to Abraham, believed God. Romans chapter 4 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And then later, later in verse 22, it says, This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, because he believed and did not waver in his belief. See, it wasn't Abraham's actions, his right living that made him righteous. It was the fact that he believed God, even when that belief contradicted his present reality. Well, God's people finally end up in the promised land after going through a series of rebellion and wandering in the wilderness, and they're supposed to be there in God's promised land as a light to the other nations about how God designed things to work where he is their God and they are his people. But the people of Israel keep getting drawn into wanting to be like the rest of the nations all around them. And in Judges 17, verse 6, we see that they were following their own way of life, doing what was right in their own eyes. And instead of having God as their king, they wanted to have a king like all the other nations, 1 Samuel 8. And God gives in to their demands and gives them a king, even though it's going to cost them to have a king ruling over them. Over a series of about a thousand years, Israel continues to stray from God's design for their lives, and instead of going his way, they embrace the way of the world around them. Instead of leading the world out of the darkness and into the light, they embrace the darkness. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, they're going to be sent into exile. They're going to be kicked out of the promised land. The Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh in Egypt. They worshipped other gods, followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They ended up rejecting God's decrees and God's covenant and instead followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They imitated the nations around them, even though God had said, do not do as they do. I've said over the years that we become like what we worship. The things that, that consume our attention, our affection, and our actions actually have an effect on us, and we start to become like them. That's why we have to be very careful with what we worship. And, and right now, society is worshiping something that's very against God, and we're worshiping the upside-down kingdom. Despite all of God's attempts to lead Israel back into his right-side-up kingdom, Israel continued to choose the upside-down kingdom of the world. And just like Israel would do, we join Babylon in the rebellion against God. 
We joined Babylon in rebelling against God when we embraced the lie that we can define reality for ourselves. That is the lie that our culture believes wholeheartedly right now. You can define reality for yourselves. You can define what is truth for you. And this is where we find ourselves today. Some experts, some biblical experts, are calling our modern society a digital Babylon, a digitalized version of the rebellion that the Israelites embraced. Despite the form, the truth remains. We are trying to define reality for ourselves. More than ever in human history, we are obsessed right now with my will be done thinking. We want the power to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and even what is real and not real all the way down to our genetic makeup. And America is built around this individualism. Throughout most of human history, the family has been the central core of the community, and people did not make decisions as an individual. They made decisions as a family, and how this decision I was making at this moment would affect the family would actually alter my ability to make it as an individual. But in America, this great experiment that is, that is called, and probably in response to an overuse of power in Europe at the time, we have responded by saying, well, nobody's going to control me. And we flung the pendulum so far in the direction opposite of this family thinking that God had in mind that even Marty McFly could never catch up to it with the DeLorean. In the early 1800s, a Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville, a guy that my dad uh, shared some teaching with me when I was younger, He's the guy where I use the quote, America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, she will also cease to be great. Alexis de Tocqueville said that. But he came and he studied America. And he noted that the extremist individualism among Americans was the defining trait. And that if this individualism was left unchecked, it would bring about the end of the human race. Not just America, the human race. 2020 got us awful close to the fulfillment of his words. Living in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, we are in the Disneyland of radical individualism. People literally come here. They come to Portland because it's so individualistic. Radical individualism is the air that we breathe, and if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves joining digital Babylon instead of lighting a way out of its darkness. Why is the world so angry and divided? Well, once you start to have a biblical framework, and this is how, how God designed things to work, you understand God created a system and a structure for everything to work, and when we live within God's system and structure, we thrive, and when we step outside of God's system and structure, we, we find chaos and devastation and destruction. When you start to understand that, you can see the reason the world is so angry and divided is because everyone right now is trying to define reality for themselves. Everyone wants to be able to, de to determine for themselves what is true and what is not true. But when we do that, inevitably, my truth will at some point conflict with your truth. The problem with my truth is that the only way to live by a truth that I create is to force others to embrace my version of the truth, which is precisely what's happening in the world around us. Many people under the influence of digital Babylon are trying to force others to enter their false 
realities, and identities. And because we're trying to be gods by defining truth instead of embracing God's truth, when people contradict our truth, they're not just contradicting an ideology that we agree with, but they're actually challenging us down to the very core of who we are. Remember towards the beginning of the pandemic, these uh, social distancing bumper tables came out? Does anyone remember this? Did anyone see this picture? It was on the news. So a bar, I don't remember where it was, wanted to stay open, and the owner came up with these, with these inner tube surrounded tables where you could still go and you could keep social distance, but you could outside go and still have a beer with your friends. Keep that up on the screen for just a minute. This is, this is really what it's like in the world today. So imagine that the bumper around each one of those people is actually the ring of truth that revolves around what that person believes, kind of like, like Saturn has the ring around it. These, these people all have their own reality that they're living in, and, and, and as long as no one else is around, things aren't too bad. We're only hurting ourselves. We're not really hurting anyone else. But as soon as someone, else, someone else's truth bumps into my truth, someone's going to spill their beer, right? Something is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen because two truths that occupy the same space or the same idea, you know, the same idea framework cannot be true at the same time. This is a table, and as long as you understand that this is a table, we're good. But if you start calling this a cherry, we're going to have a problem, and those two truths will start to conflict because this cannot be both a cherry and a table at the same time. It could be a table made out of cherry wood, but that is not the case. This is a laminate of some kind. So two truths cannot be real at the same time. And when they are, we start to have problems. This actually is not unlike what the world was like when Jesus was crucified. This is a much greater, extremer version of it from what uh, all scholars think. This is the most div divided our country has been since the Civil War. There's actually, uh, there are statistics to prove that now. But the world that Jesus was in when he was crucified was divided. There were many tribes and factions that were opposed to one another. In fact, many scholars believe that Jesus actually chose the 12 that he chose because they represented opposing forces in that culture. On Jesus' 12 disciples, there were pacifists and insurrectionists. There were righteous zealots and greedy tax collectors, all opposed to one another and unified under Jesus' teaching. As Jesus goes through the events that lead to his crucifixion, you can see tribes within tribes within tribes, all of them fighting for power and control like we see today, all of them wanting to exert their power completely over the others. The Jews and the Romans were fighting for power, the Jews hoping Jesus would actually be the one who overthrows the Roman government. The religious leaders of the Jews were fighting with other religious leaders within the Jewish community. You can see that by the different high priests that, that Jesus has to go to. He goes to the high priest, and then he goes to the retired high priest, and he comes back to the other high priest because there's, there's fighting, there's indecision about who has the authority to make these decisions. And Roman leaders were fighting other Roman leaders to maintain power as governors over certain sections of the population. There were tribes divided up in Jesus' time. 
And they all wanted to have ultimate power where they could decide what is right and wrong for their people and their world. This is my will, not thy will be done kind of thinking. And that's the upside down world that we live in. It's actually the realm of the devil. Scripture teaches that the devil is the prince of the air, and the prince of the air is who is in control of, of the world, which is a system that is opposed to God. Jesus, sets, Jesus describes the world as a system that is opposed to God's ways and God's rule and reign. And, and so the, the devil is the prince of that world. He's the ruler over that world. And this my will be done world of the devil is actually the world of death. It was by following the devil's plan in the first place that death was introduced to humanity. And it's not just that, that God says the consequences of sin and rebelling against him with sinful behavior are death, but because God is the giver of life, Satan's final aim is to destroy it. And this death actually becomes the prison that all humans are born into. We were born into this prison where we all think that we're gods over our own lives and, and we can decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. It's a prison that teaches us the lie that if we could only get everything in our life the way that we want it, well, then we would finally be happy. And everyone has been doing that for years and no one is happy. In fact, we're more unhappy now than ever. And it was into this upside-down kingdom that Jesus was born. Jesus, the king of a different kingdom, willingly chose to become the captive of the upside-down kingdom. By being born as a human, Jesus actually was becoming obedient to the upside-down kingdom that would result in his death. From the moment he was born, he was headed towards death, even though he was the way, the truth, and the life. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, probably talking about Jesus' activity of washing the disciples' feet, doing what a servant would do, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the king of all creation, made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, knowing fully and understanding completely what the true kingdom was, chose to enter the enemy's kingdom. And he did this so that he could come in and from the inside break the promise of the upside-down kingdom, which was death. Hebrews chapter 2 since the children have flesh and blood, talking about us and all humans, he, Jesus, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So the devil holds the power of death, and he is the one who has power over us who are humans with death. He entered this world to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. 
For this reason, he had, been, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Who are Abraham's descendants that Jesus came to help? Well, according to Paul in Romans chapter 4, anyone who has the faith of Abraham that believes God is a descendant of Abraham. He, Abraham had physical descendants, but we, by our faith in God and believing what God says, become Abraham's descendants. And by his death on the cross, Jesus actually broke the power of death for Abraham's descendants. The only way that Jesus could fix the problem that we caused with our rebellion in the pursuit of our own truth was to become a prisoner like us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you might not be super familiar with the idea of sin. You might have heard the word, but a lot of, a lot of pastors haven't uh, been preaching hard about it. We, we've, I feel like we have always talked about it. But in case you don't know, sin is doing things our way instead of God's way. Sin is anything that makes us less like God. Anything that we embrace that makes us less like the image that we were made in is sin. Anything we choose to do that doesn't, that doesn't make us look more like God is sin. This is the upside-down kingdom that we live in. The right-side-up kingdom is the reality where God's will is always done and where everyone does God's will despite their own desires. And this is why Jesus' greatest temptation, the greatest struggle that he faced, actually wasn't the cross. The cross was horrific. It was horrible. It was an awful experience. But Jesus' greatest struggle came in the hours before the cross. It's what happened in the garden. Hebrews chapter 2, 18, we just read, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Luke chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was struggling in the garden, not struggling under just the weight of what he was about to face, though I'm sure that was weighing heavily on his mind, but struggling with whether or not he would do God's will or go his own way. And he prayed three times for God to change his will. But every time he struggled and he said, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Heaven is where the will of God is done. By doing the will of God inside the kingdom of darkness, Jesus was actually bringing the kingdom of God near, was his phrase. By bringing the kingdom of God near through his obedience to the will of God, he was bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness. 
And by becoming obedient to death, Jesus was not just being a servant of the kingdom of darkness, but he was also fulfilling the will of God. And because he fulfilled and obeyed the will of God, even though it would cost him his very life, what Jesus did was he, he created a gate, a doorway, some might say in modern lingo, a portal from death to life. Jesus actually created a way for the prisoners of this kingdom of darkness out of the darkness and into the kingdom of God where life reigns. Hebrews chapter 10 says that, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. That means as Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's something significant happening. He's not just hanging on the cross and dying a cruel death, but at the moment of Jesus' death, what happens is the, the veil in the temple is torn. And, and if, you, if you read the description, it says it would take two horses pulling in opposite directions to, to tear this veil. But that was just a symbol of what was going to happen to Christ on the cross. What was going to happen was Jesus' flesh was going to be torn. And it's through his torn flesh, which the author of Hebrews describes, is the veil. The real veil is Jesus' flesh, not the thing that's in the temple. That was just a picture and a symbol of Jesus' flesh that would be torn. And it's through Jesus' torn flesh that we can now once again come into the kingdom of light. Jesus' torn flesh becomes the gate through which we enter God's kingdom. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you've been baptized when you were, when you were baptized, the symbol is you were buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the, uh, by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. So you're buried with Christ through baptism and you're raised to a new life in Christ through the resurrection. So when Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again, he wasn't kidding. He was saying you actually have to go through death and be resurrected and be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Through his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, Jesus made a way for us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, also can be translated our trailblazer, entered the prison willingly and created a way out. He created a gate, a door through which we could exit the kingdom of darkness and enter the kingdom of light. And he did this with his sacrifice on the cross. If you want to join us in taking communion, we're going to take communion right now. The elements are on the table in front of you. Before Jesus would have his struggle in the garden, he would actually have a meal with the disciples where he would create a new covenant with us. And while he was sitting there, he gave us a picture of what was about to happen literally to him. His flesh was about to be broken. And so he took the bread and he broke it.
And then he passed the bread to his disciples and he said, as often as you eat of this, eat in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. And later in the evening, he took a cup of wine and, and he made a new covenant with us. The covenant is the way for us to have a relationship with the Father. It would be through his sacrifice as, as the, the final sacrificial lamb on the cross that we would once again be able to have relationship with the Father directly. He took the cup, said, as often as you drink of this, drink it and remember to me. Let's remember together. Jesus didn't just submit to death. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, but he didn't just submit to death. He defeated death. Like my mom shared on Facebook yesterday, death was proof that Jesus was human. Resurrection was proof that he is God. Jesus was born as a baby. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve to die. But he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. As it turns out, there's only one real kingdom that has ultimate authority to rule and reign, and it's not the kingdom of death and darkness that we live in right now. It's the kingdom of life, and true life can never be defeated by death, Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were afraid of him, so they shook and became like dead men. The guards of death actually started shaking in fear at life. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them there. When they were obeying what the angel said, Jesus met them in the middle of their carrying out of the obedience of the command. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Fear is, is, is the thing that is probably the thickest in the air of the kingdom of darkness. So much fear is constantly peddled around us, and we have just spent the last year of our lives walking in fear. 
Fear from, from the pandemic, fear from civil unrest, fear from forest fires, fear from an election, fear from an attack on the Capitol, fear from the response to the attack on the Capitol. Fear has been ruling and reigning over our lives. And Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, he says his first words, the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, Greetings, do not be afraid. Is there an answer to the world's problems? Absolutely. But there's only one, and it's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, Jesus' way is not socially approved at the moment, but it is still the only way, and Jesus is still the only hope of the world. And by extension, through our redemption, for those of us who believe in Christ and, are, and the righteousness is credited to us just like it was to Abraham, through our redemption, we are once again coronated into the kingdom as sons and daughters of God, and we once again become his representatives, his image bearers, his ambassadors made in the image and likeness of God reflecting God to the rest of the world, reflect, reflecting light into the darkness. Jesus became sin so that we could receive life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. The old corrupted mind of the old kingdom is gone. The new existence of the right side up kingdom is here. And we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Jesus is the answer for the world's problems, and he makes his appeal through us. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. If we live our lives like Jesus did, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in me as it is in heaven. We're actually bringing the kingdom of God near to those who are fully immersed in the kingdom of darkness. This is why Jesus died, and this is why he rose from the dead. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these things, he's just described, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The divine power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that raises us from the dead and gives us new life. And as a result of being resurrected from the dead, as a, as a result of the resurrected king resurrecting me, now I get to participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. For those who are still in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of my will be done, not thy will, there's only one way out. It's the way of Abraham. It's to believe God. It's to believe in the kingdom of God, to enter through the kingdom of God, through the only way, the one way, which is the gate of Jesus, where we can become a part of the true kingdom. The question is, will we follow Jesus into a death like his so we can experience a life like his? 
Will we participate in the divine power of the resurrection and the divine nature? Will we allow God to raise us from death to life? Will we allow God to set us free from the prison and then use us to liberate others, leading them not to ourselves but to the one gate, the one exit? Will we let God address the catastrophic fa failure that exists within us or will we keep trying to define for ourselves what is true? One answer ushers in the kingdom of peace. The other answer ushers in the kingdom of chaos. There's a divine flaw inside the switch. You can't see it. Everything looks fine. To your eye, it looks right. The only way to fix this switch is to go inside the switch and rewire it from the inside out. Give it a new life so that it can actually function the way it was designed to work. The same thing is true for us. Inside of us, there is a catastrophic failure. Inside of every human being is a catastrophic failure that, that causes us to dysfunction, to be miswired at all times and have the wrong ambitions, the wrong affections, the wrong pursuits in all of our lives. And the only way for that to be fixed is for, for, the, for the master electrician to come inside each and every one of us and rewire us from the inside out, giving us a new nature, a new divine nature, that seeks first the kingdom of God. And that, that's Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you that he did not stay dead. And thank you that by his resurrection from the dead, we can participate in a new life. We can participate in the kingdom of God. I pray, Father, that though my words have been many and they have been long, I pray that the words that you once spoken to our hearts would stick throughout the course of this day. And I pray that you would draw every one of us, whether we're already in the kingdom of light or not, draw us deeper into the light of the kingdom of God, draw us nearer to the kingdom where your will is done in all ways and at all times, so that through us you might make your appeal to the darkness and that the darkness that is prevalent and causing the chaos and the devastation and the destruction around us could be drawn out of that and drawn into the only reality that is truly real, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.